And from that, withhold not your hand. For the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. Wisdom gives strength to the wise man more than ten rulers who are in a city. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Do not take heart all these things that people say, lest your, you hear your servant cursing you. Your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. All this I have tested by wisdom. I said, I will be wise, but it was far from me. That which has been far off and deep, very deep, who can find it out? I turned my heart to know and to search out and to seek wisdom and the scheme of things and to know the wickedness of folly and the foolishness that is madness. And I find something more bitter than death. The woman whose heart is snares and nets and whose hands are fetters. He who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. Behold, this is what I found, says the preacher, while adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things, which my soul has sought repeatedly, but I have not found. One man among a thousand I found, but a woman among these I have not found. See, this alone I found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. This is the word of God. Welcome once again. If you're visiting with us, you've picked the perfect week because we're in Ecclesiastes and in probably two of the hardest passages in the Bible uh, here in Ecclesiastes 7. So we work through books of the Bible and uh, the rule is I'm not allowed to skip the parts that would be difficult. And so this puts me sometimes into panic mode during the week as I cry out to God, God, I'm too stupid to figure this out. Please have mercy on me and give me your wisdom. Ecclesiastes has been talking about wisdom. And this passage reminded me of the wisest man I knew growing up, which was my grandfather. I always figured that I could be at least as smart as my parents, but there was something about grandpa's wisdom that I never felt that I could achieve. For starters, he knew the Bible better than anyone I had ever met, including any pastors, and, and he and my grandma were always reading the Bible, it seemed. When we would have breakfast with them, they would have read the longest passages, and we weren't allowed to eat until they had finished reading, and, and they had already started their devotions even before that. So whatever time they got up to start their devotions, then they would do a second set of devotions with us when we'd visit. And Grandpa worked as an airline pilot until he could afford to farm, and then he farmed to finance their missionary trips to Africa with Mission Aviation Fellowship. But not only was my grandpa a great example of living according to biblical wisdom, but he and my grandma were also very attentive in stewarding their physical health. Uh, because my great-grandpa had diabetes, my grandparents ate almost no sugar. They, he had no alcohol, to my knowledge, no smoking, and they always exercised daily into their senior years. And so you could tell that it came as a shock when he had the first of his strokes. He had lived a careful, wise, 
life. He ate right. He exercised. What more could he have done to steward his health? Though he lived a wise and healthy life, that is not all that there was to the equation. Wisdom in Ecclesiastes is a good thing, especially when it's contrasted with folly. But it has been insistent that human wisdom and understanding are limited and are therefore insufficient to produce a lasting profit. Thus, the final assessment that it is all hevel. That's that word that means mist, vanity, temporal, and fleeting. Possessing wisdom is far from enabling complete mastery over existence, and it certainly does not solve the problem of death. Wisdom is constrained to operate within the parameters set by God. And so it's crucial to remember that all things are established by God, Colossians 1.16. Everything was created for Him and by Him. And so wisdom is not a key that can be used in independence of the Creator to unlock the secrets of the universe, to shape existence after mortal desires, or to control life. This was the original sin in the Garden of Eden, to uh, reach out their hands to grasp wisdom for themselves, to determine good from bad. And so while Ecclesiastes keeps acknowledging that certain ways of behaving are better and wiser and generally lead towards goodness and life rather than death, its purpose here is to teach us enough wisdom to know that wisdom is not magic. There is no wisdom formula by which we become masters of our destiny because the universe is not a predictable machine where you can just insert the prescribed ingredients and achieve the intended results but a personally governed and complex space. God is not an object to be manipulated, nor does God's world belong to human beings. And so Ecclesiastes recognizes, now in our passage this morning, that one of the excellent attributes of wisdom is that it can reveal the way to righteous living. And, and that is what the text this morning all pertains to. We continue to look at wisdom. That's the theme all the way through these chapters. But now here, in its relationship to righteousness. And shockingly, we are taught once again that there is no certain formula we can insert into the reality of things to comprehend and to control them. The pursuit of wisdom and even righteousness brings no guarantee for how the individual life will work out. Verse 13 says, What God has made crooked cannot be straightened by the effort of humans. And so Ecclesiastes exposes a pursuit for wisdom and even human righteousness, which is motivated by the desire for control and independence. Not only has God hidden his wisdom and knowledge from men, Colossians 2, 3, but human sinfulness precludes any attempts through wisdom and righteousness to achieve what we seek in any comprehensive or ultimate sense. And so, after outing this type of pursuit as foolishness, we will be invited to live instead a life of trusting dependence on God, what the biblical authors refer to as fearing God. So follow with me, starting in verse 15, and we'll tackle the tough stuff when we get there. And here it is right at the start. In my vain life, I have seen everything. 
There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. Be not overly righteous, and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? It is good that you should take hold of this, and from that withhold not your hand, for the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. Ecclesiastes considers the fate of the righteous and the wicked and points out something that we have all probably seen, but maybe we have been quiet about it. He sees that good people suffer, and he sees them die, maybe even because of their righteousness. And he sees evil people thriving despite and perhaps even through their evil doing. The purpose here is to shock us by these statements. This seems to be the polar opposite of what much of the biblical wisdom literature teaches us. Don't the righteous extend their lives by righteousness? And will not the way of the wicked perish? Careful study of the book of Proverbs as a whole will show that the Bible does not teach such a simple retribution formula like karma. But this does cut across the normal expectations of the biblical audience. It's meant to shock. There are many reasons why people experience what they do in life, including corruption, oppression, and violence. In his sovereign control, God allows human choice to have whatever effects will best serve his purpose. So the wisdom sayings will correctly identify observable patterns in the way people live life and will point us towards righteous living, but they cannot be understood as confining a sovereign God to simple formulas which we finite humans have developed. There's no formula by which to live your life to guarantee material blessing. No formula by which to extend your life. So much of Ecclesiastes, uh, I wish I had studied much earlier in my life when I was in the Word of Faith and and Health and Wealth cult, because uh, so much of it directly refutes these teachings. You know, plug it in, put your quarter in, you get out the response. If you give to God, then you will get back. If you serve, then you will get blessed. The Ecclesiastes just points out what we've all seen. It doesn't necessarily go that way. The warning to follow then, related to this observation that the righteous do not necessarily extend their lives, is verse 16, not to be overly righteous or too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? In balance, neither should you be overly wicked or be a fool at all. Why should you die before your time? Now, the symmetry here can throw us off the trail. But this is not counsel that sin in moderation is acceptable or that we should find the perfect balance of righteous and wicked living. It is that after saying a shocking thing about righteousness and wisdom, a shocking thing about their limitations, uh, the author then counterbalances the point by warning against wickedness and folly. So don't destroy yourself by being overly righteous or too wise, but I mean, don't go the wicked way. God will kill you. Wisdom and coinciding righteousness won't save you or grant you endless life. So don't ruin yourself in your fervor for them. But don't let that reality fool you into thinking wickedness is a better alternative. You will die before your time. 
So the remainder of the passage illustrates the main point here in verses 15 to 18, that no one is perfectly righteous, so that any expectation that wisdom and righteousness could guarantee protection from difficult and tragic experiences is totally foolhardy. The main point of our entire text this morning is that no matter how fervently we pursue wisdom and righteousness, because all sin, no one can expect their wisdom or righteous living to always avert destruction and extend life. We all fall short, Romans 3.23. None of us can do enough to deserve the reward of a righteous life. Rather than to pursue wisdom and righteousness to the point of self-harm, we should fear God. This is the resounding theme of Ecclesiastes and its final word, Ecclesiastes 12, 13. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep His commandments. This is the whole duty of man. So Ecclesiastes does not tell us to, to live a life in the gray, balanced, as it were, between righteous and wicked living. A life of only partial alignment with God's ways is inconsistent with the expression, one who fears God. Because that is a standard description of one who lives in willing submission to God and his purposes and keeps his commandments. The one who fears God keeps his commandments. In this, Jesus taught that we must exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees, Matthew 5.20. So we are not given permission here to only obey God part of the time. But we are warned not to destroy ourselves by being overly righteous. Now, how can you be overly righteous? How can you be too good? In this context, the Hebrew term for righteousness can be more specifically defined as disadvantaging oneself for the benefit of others. And in contrast, wickedness is really to advantage oneself to the detriment of others. You know how we have all these words for good? Like there's good and pure and righteous and holy and godly and pious, thank you. Righteousness has a more specific definition. To do a righteous act is to say that you disadvantage yourself for the benefit of others, which is what righteous people do. In this sense, one can go too far to be overly righteous. You could take a vow of poverty, giving all of your income to orphans and widows, and end up needing help yourself. You could be a right Mother Teresa, spending all of your time serving others without reserving enough to keep your own house in order. I remember uh, growing up in the health and wealth doctrine where we were taught that it was a simple formula. The more you gave to God of your finances, the more he would give back to you in money and health. And so I was working for my Uncle Byron, a farmer, and he asked me, what was I going to do with my pay? And I told him, I'm going to give it all to the church. Because, I mean, what a better investment. I know that if I give all my money, that's going to come back and I'm going to reap a great reward of, of money back from God. And my uncle did two things. First, he cut my pay. <laughs> and secondly, he questioned that simplistic formula for life. The crux of God's law, after loving God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, is to love your neighbor as yourself. This sets the bar for obedience. But when we seek the benefits of a long life, prosperity, and personal happiness through self-denial and wisdom principles, it is not God or our neighbor we are serving, but ourselves 
and to our detriment. Wisdom is attractive to many people and righteousness precisely because it appears to offer the possibility of control over our lives. But wisdom does not give one leverage in respect of God so that the future somehow becomes predictable. Wisdom and righteousness do not guarantee prosperity and long life. God is not karma. Human pursuits cannot guarantee safety, and intensifying the quest for control and security through wisdom or even righteousness only leads to self-ruin. Like Job's three friends, remember they blame him, you must have done something wrong. People are convinced that good and bad events in life are always directly linked to personal behavior, will then come to the practical result of such a philosophy, which is asceticism. That that is a system of extreme self-denial, like taking a vow of poverty or personal deprivation. For Ecclesiastes, asceticism is futile in that it is bound to fail. It is arrogant in that it stems from this smug certainty about our own righteousness. And it is miserable in that ascetics have cut themselves off from the normal joys of life. The one who fears God, verse 18, is warned against both wickedness, which leads to judgment by God, and being overly righteous, which leads to self-ruin. As opposed to asceticism, which looks upon every pleasurable indulgence or mirth as sin, Ecclesiastes regularly counsels us to combine true religion, fear of God, with the true enjoyment of the good things that God has given So Ecclesiastes is very important to us this morning. We, in Sunday school, may have been brought up with various simplistic formulas about how to live the good life. And Ecclesiastes blows those all the smithereens and then says, look, God's in control. Enjoy what good things he gives you. Fear him and keep his commands. These are the two repeated refrains of Ecclesiastes. Enjoy the good things God provides. Fear God and keep his commandments. Now, there are two difficult statements in our text this morning, and I probably would have separated them if they were not directly related. What follows now in the chapter are several illustrations of what has now been said in verses 15 to 18, that wisdom, even as it relates to righteous living, is a positive thing, but is still limited in its ability to give us a handle on life. So, continuing on verse 19... It seems like a series of unrelated proverbs, but it is not. Wisdom gives strength to the wise man more than ten rulers who are in a city. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Do not take to heart all the things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. Your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. Wisdom though it may be pursued from bad motives and that pursuit may result in bad consequences, is still in itself a good thing. One wise person is more powerful than ten officials in a city, which is a way of saying that wisdom is more effective and important than any other human quality or ability. The Bible praises wisdom, holds it as valuable. And yet the fact that no one is fully righteous and wise means that the power that wisdom brings is fragile and limited. Verse 20 here sounds like Paul in Romans 3.10 and onwards, who himself is quoting a number of Old Testament passages, especially from the Psalms, no one is righteous, no, not one. 
Then the example in verses 21 to 22 is meant to portray this fundamental reality that even things we recognize as evil behavior in others finds its place in our own hearts. See, the original audience would have taken great offense at a servant who grumbled against them and would likely have inflicted punishment for it, but their conscience would know that every one of us has grumbled against others. And so we are instructed to treat others with patience and kindness, knowing that we ourselves have similar failings. But the, the main point is to show that it is foolish to bring an entitlement mentality in our relationship with God, thinking that we have done enough to deserve protection from all trouble. Even if there was a way to establish a good future by wisdom and righteous living, none of us has accomplished righteous living anywhere near the degree that we could rightly expect wisdom's rewards. Verse 23 and 24, all this I have tested by wisdom. I said, I will be wise, but it was far from me. That which has been is far off and deep, very deep. Who can find it out? So, not only are we an unrighteous people since Adam's rebellion, but we were created finite even before it. We are creatures, not the Creator. No one can come to a comprehensive understanding of the universe because all of the data is too far off and far too profound. Proverbs 26.12 warns, Do you see a man who is wise in his own eyes? There is more hope for a fool than for him. And Romans 1.22 speaks of those who, claiming to be wise, became fools. The fullness of wisdom is beyond us. How can we expect to assure the future by our own means when we lack the fundamental ability to grasp the scheme of things? The only true wisdom is to fear God. This connects to the previous passage that we talked about last week, where it says that because we don't know the future, because we don't know the way things work out, there's no way that we can put together a formula that brings our best good about. Only God can accomplish this. Wisdom is beyond us. True wisdom is to fear God. The final illustration of this matter follows then in chapter, or in verses 25 to 29. I turned my heart to know and to search out and to seek wisdom in the scheme of things and to know the wickedness of folly and the foolishness that is madness. And I found something more bitter than death, the woman whose heart is snares and nets and whose hands are fetters. He who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. Behold, this is what I found, says the preacher, while adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things, which my soul has sought repeatedly, but I have not found. One man among a thousand I found, but a woman among all these I have not found. See, this alone I found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. This is the word of the Lord. The book of Proverbs devotes considerable space to the arming of a young man with the wisdom to resist the temptation of the wayward woman, using the same metaphors that we find here. Now, in ancient cultures, it was not so much a concern 
about specific gendering in the language. And so the repeated commands in Proverbs to my son are also applicable to my daughter, just as the term brothers in the New Testament is used regularly to refer to brothers and sisters. But in an age when the protection of daughters was the sober responsibility of their fathers, sons were placed at a specific disadvantage in their freedom to roam, the danger of seduction. You see, in this, in this era, all men were seen as a possible threat to young women, but a son was warned against the snare of the seductress. Proverbs 7, to 23, all at once he follows her as an ox goes to the slaughter, or as a stag caught fast till an arrow pierces its liver, as a bird rushes into a snare, he does not know that it will cost him his life. In Proverbs, the snare is not one to be escaped from. It's hopeless. Therefore, wisdom calls for young men to flee, even to avoid the street where she lives or the corner she calls from. Vigilance is necessary when your very life is on the line. The wise avoid the trap. But that is not what Ecclesiastes is talking about here. Here, verse 26, it is the one who pleases God who escapes her. Now, the Proverbs doesn't have a, a place for this. Proverbs is the wisdom for how not to be entrapped. But the one here in Ecclesiastes, the one who pleases God, escapes her. Now, first of all, we have to ask, who pleases God? Especially in the light of the previous passages about the unrighteousness of all men. Simple answer, only Jesus, Matthew 13. 317 is the beloved son with whom the father is well pleased. But because of the perfect obedience of Jesus, even bringing him to his death, those who trust God for salvation are found pleasing to God. And throughout Scripture, God's chosen people are referred to, Deuteronomy 7, 6, as his own treasured possession, the ones for which he longs. They are the apple of his eye, the ones he is pleased with. Here in Ecclesiastes, he who pleases God and the sinner are not moral categories. It's not the wise and the fool like it is in Proverbs. It's the one who pleases God who escapes her. He is speaking of God's mysterious action in rescuing whoever he pleases. He who pleases God is the person whom God chooses to bless for reasons beyond the author's comprehension. The sinner is the person whom God chooses not to bless for the same inscrutable reasons. To simplify, the wise may avoid the snare of seduction, but the one God chooses to bless escapes his foolish entanglement through no cunning of his own. This is emotional for me because this is the story of my conversion. I was taught wisdom growing up, but it did not take... But God rescued me from my entanglement. God saved me where my cunning could not. Psalm 32.1 says, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. And Romans 4, 7 and 8, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. We'll come back to this after addressing verse 28. 
which on the surface appears to contain an uncomplimentary remark about women in particular. The NIV adds some interpretation over the ESV's more literal translation. It says, while I was still searching but not finding, I found one upright man among a thousand, but not one upright woman among them all. Now, I know this passage pretty well because as a sinful and rebellious Bible college student, I undertook to memorize every difficult and offensive passage I could uh, to recite from my Bible meditation class. I knew this to be an offensive passage because it sounds like it is saying that there are very few men who are pleasing to God or upright, as the NIV inserts, but no women at all. So my female teacher loved me, obviously. The key to understanding this is that this is not a misogynistic slur against women here in the Bible is found in verse 27. The only time in the book, uh, in the body of the book, where the author says, or adds, sorry, says the preacher. Now, I probably owe some of my understanding of Ecclesiastes to my beloved Sunday school teacher, the late Diane Layton, who would draw us into her allegorical world to teach us about Jesus by telling stories with various hats in her hands, and sometimes strewn all around, each representing their own character in the narrative that she would tell. And so we would hear a loving invitation from the good king represented by a crown. And then we would see the response of a young seeker who would don another cap or the growlings of an angry and nose-picking dragon who wore the black hood. So one author spoke through each character with a different voice and attitude, but teaching the same truth. Now, this is going right back to the first couple of sermons in Ecclesiastes, but the author here lets us know that he is putting on his Solomon hat again. Remember at the beginning, it says, the preacher, which draws connection to this Solomon persona. And at the end, it's going to remind us that it was the Solomon who was speaking. Now, here is the only time in the body of the book of Ecclesiastes that reminds us, the preacher says. And now, speaking in the Solomon persona, the author reminds us that Solomon was the wisest among men, 1 Kings 4.31, and yet he failed to escape the snare of the wayward woman. In fact, he failed roughly a thousand times. 1 Kings chapter 11, verses 1-4. to Now King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women, from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, you shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn away your hearts after their gods. Solomon clung to these in love. He had 700 wives who were princesses and 300 concubines. And his wives turned away his heart. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. And so it's from this perspective of Solomon, the author searches his court for someone blessed by God to escape the recompense of their sin. He who pleases God. And he finds that it is exceedingly rare, perhaps one in a thousand. But he did not find one such person among the thousand women of his household, referring to his 700 foreign wives and 300 concubines. 
So this isn't a general statement that men are better than women. Not, it wasn't the, the time and place the Bible is still uh, holds men and women as equal. But now this illustration of verse 25 to 29 is made clear. Even Solomon, in all of his wisdom, was unable to avoid the snare. And in all of his wisdom, he was unable to free himself. Wisdom avoids sin. Indeed, it flees it. But no one can avoid temptation all of the time. No one is righteous. No, not one. And no amount of wisdom can free us from the snare of sin. Only the work of our God. This is why Jesus teaches us to pray, Matthew 6, 13, lead us not into temptation and deliver us from evil rather than give us wisdom to avoid sin. Wisdom is limited in its ability to keep us from temptation and it is totally unable to deliver us. Such is the crooked and broken way of things. God made Adam perfect in the beginning but Adam pursued his own way rather than God's way. We have all now joined our first parent in that rebellion, and thus we have all experienced the brokenness. So wisdom and righteousness, the author teaches, are good things. But in our brokenness, people seek wisdom and righteous living as a means of exerting control over their own destiny, supposing that they can exercise control over God and the future by pious living. Ecclesiastes makes it clear that such schemes do not work. Rather, they reflect the refusal of human creatures to live in submission to their creator and ultimately lead to ruin. False religion, even under the guise of Christianity, pursues wisdom and righteousness as the means to manipulate God and to gain the future we desire. This is what I grew up with in church. And so we must give an honest account of ourselves, church. Do I help my neighbor out of self-interest as part of such manipulation? True religion has as its heart love for God and love for neighbor, in which the self looks outward and gives itself away to others, knowing that every heavenly blessing is already secured for us by the righteousness of Christ Jesus. So the righteousness that we're warned against here, the righteous living that leads to ruin, the overly righteous, is the righteousness of self-pursuit, a formula by which we are going to gain the life that we want to have, and we are warned this leads to ruin. True religion recognizes that no one is righteous so that all of our hope rests upon the graciousness of God. Wisdom is good. Righteousness is good. Wisdom is granted by God not so much that we can navigate future outcomes and master our destinies. We are granted sufficient light to live by. Enough of God's character to fear Him and enough of His will to obey his commands. At all times, it is God who controls the times. At all times, it is God who rules the universe, and his ways are inscrutable. The New Testament consistently links true wisdom with the person of Jesus Christ, and it attacks any wisdom that ultimately stands apart from him. 
There is a human wisdom that God has limited and ultimately He opposes. It is a wisdom He intends to frustrate, 1 Corinthians 1, 18 and 19. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. In contrast... Christ Himself, 1 Corinthians 1.24, the power of God and the wisdom of God. In Him, Colossians 2.3, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. All truth and all true wisdom are ultimately focused on Jesus and derived from Him. Romans 11.33, oh, the depth of of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and how unscrutable His ways. Let's pray. Father, there is so much here to rejoice in and so much here to repent for. We come to You with the joy of knowing that we are forgiven as you bring conviction by your Holy Spirit and you transform us by the good news of your gospel. And so we come to you in repentance with thanksgiving for the ways in which we have tried to control you, for the ways in which we have tried to be the masters of our own destiny, setting out a formula before ourselves by which to live, to get the kind of life that we want to achieve, even an eternal life that we want to achieve. Forgive us, God. We speak more than we know. We have no idea how to achieve the good that you have planned for us. And yet, we are so prone to seeking out schemes, ways of getting our desires, even if it's through what seem like good things, like wisdom and righteousness. We rejoice in the forgiveness you have already bought by the blood of Christ, and we rejoice at the good news that you are rescuing us from our sin. And where wisdom fails us, and we are trapped, that we can cry out to you, and you will rescue us. And that you will get all the credit for our righteous living, which is why we pray, lead us not into temptation. Deliver us from evil because we're completely unable on our own, but you are able and you are willing because we are those you have loved. And so, Father, I pray that you would transform us by the renewing of our mind as your Holy Spirit, our one true teacher, applies these passages to our lives. Show us the ways in which we have done overly good, overly righteous things in order to Seek out a selfish reward. Show us where the true motivation of our heart is not love. Love for God and love for our neighbor so that we will no longer be a resounding gong, worthless and noisy, but that you would transform us and that we would do truly righteous works motivated by your love through us. And we ask this for the glory of Jesus that people would see our genuine love for one another and for the world, and they would know that we are your disciples. Glorify yourself 
through your church, I pray. Amen.